honor and a privilege this morning to be able to proclaim God's word to you. And I just want to echo a sentiment that Noah made last week, uh, not concerning uh, beards and sweater vests, which I thought they were going to pass out when I came in. Um, so I don't have either one. Um, but the one concerning just the leadership and the direction that the elders and the staff of this church provide. Uh, my family and I have benefited greatly from sitting under such men of integrity, uh, such men who are biblically faithful, and, and men who, who love Christ and who love his bride. And so on behalf, I know I can speak for the members of North Wake. Uh, elders and, and staff, we thank you for the way you lead us. Um, Mark Dever, one time, he's a, a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and when asked, when a young minister has the opportunity to proclaim God's word in a sermon, should he preach a lot of scripture, or should he just take a couple of verses and really focus in on that? And Mark Dever, I think, wisely responded, give the young minister as much scripture as possible so that there's less room for his commentary and more room for the word of God. And Larry, uh, Larry has done exactly that. Uh, this morning we have about 60 verses that we are going to be uh, trekking through. And because of uh, all of the verses, we will not be reading them all. So I do want to encourage you, uh, either today or sometime this week, to, to go through and look at 2 Samuel 19 and 20. Um, and not, all, not to mention the amount of verses, but also uh, our passage today is loaded full of Old Testament names that Larry would recommend if you're looking for, you know, names for your children. Uh, these are some doozies in here today. Um, and I think just on top of all of that, it's good for us to remember that you can take the man out of West Tennessee, but you can't take West Tennessee out of the man, so we should have a fun time um, as we work through all of this. Uh, but on a serious note, any time that we have the opportunity to open God's Word and uh, to come together and to be edified... That is a good and fun time. And so I pray that today uh, we would honor Christ in the way uh, we handle his word. And so before uh, we worship through the word of God, uh, let's, let's pray. God, we want to thank you for the access we have in coming to you this morning. And we confess that it's not by our, our own merit that we're able to. It's by the righteousness of Christ that was transferred to us uh, from his death and his resurrection. And so, may we live our lives as a humble response to the great and immeasurable grace and forgiveness and mercy and love that's been shown to us. And this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts, that we may understand the word rightly. Father, I pray that we would not be a people who hear and learn, and then walk away and forget. Father, grant us grace to discipline our hearts for obedience. And God, I confess to you just in my preparation, I have had a tendency to want to please man. Father, I've oftentimes been more concerned about my reputation than yours. And I confess that to you today. And I stand in the, in the forgiveness and the grace and so, Father, I pray that our time today would be honoring to you. That there would be uh, no semblance of a performance on my part, but that your word would be rightly taught, that you would receive honor, that the saints would be encouraged, 
And if there are any here who do not know you, they would be pointed to the hope that they have in Christ. And so, Father, you alone are worthy of our time this morning and the affections and the allegiance of our hearts. And so um, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel. We're going to be picking up in verse 9. And just to kind of frame a little bit about what's going on, this year, the year of 2007, the leadership of North Wake has deemed this the year of seeking God wholeheartedly. And so we have been looking at the life of David, uh, for in David's life we find a man who does exactly that. Uh, he seeks God with all of his heart, and even when he fails, there are lessons to be learned about the way in which we can seek to be reconciled to God. And so it's October 7th today, and so I think this begs the question of us, church, over the past 10 months, how has your pursuit of seeking God grown? My prayer and the heart behind the teaching of God's Word isn't that we come and we just gain knowledge and we walk away and it absolutely makes no impact on our lives. But our hope and our prayer is that through the knowledge that is gained, that our lives are transformed. And so today as we engage God's Word, I do want you to be thinking towards that end. of What does this look like in my life if I'm going to be serious about seeking God wholeheartedly? And I just want to warn you, this passage has a lot of people in it. And so there's going to be all kinds of funny names and good names uh, that are thrown out. Um, But one thing I would like you just to trace throughout it all is note all of these people's interaction with David. And note David's interaction with them. And I believe there will be uh, some implications on how we live our lives as well. To catch us up... Noah taught us last week in in chapter 18, in the beginning of verse 19, Absalom, who is David's son, has sought to overthrow his father as the king of Israel. And so David's men and Absalom's men square off, and if you remember, they do it. Uh, They have this battle in a forest, and the forest devoured people. But in the midst of this battle, David's son, Absalom, is killed. Word gets back to David that his son is killed, uh, And David goes into what I would call uh, sinful mourning. And the reason I would call it sinful is because he neglects his role as God's anointed over the people of Israel. Joab, the commander of his army, goes before David and confronts him. Um, And this is where we pick up. We see David right at the end in verse verse 8. We see David going out to sit at the gate, which means he has resumed uh, his rightful role as Israel's anointed king. We pick up in, in verse 9. It says, Throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were, argu- were all arguing with, with each other, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled the country because of Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And so... We, we pick up this text and we see that Israel is in a difficult place. Uh, David is the anointed king of Israel. And yet, when he was in, in battle with Joab, we see him fleeing Jerusalem for his life. And because of that fleeing, Israel is left with no king. So they anoint Absalom as their king. And all of, um, all of Israel begins to follow Absalom. And so you see this predicament they're in. 
They understand, the text tells us, they understand who is the king. For they just refer to Absalom as the one that we anointed. They understand that David is God's anointed over them. We also see uh, in this text that We also see in the text that uh, the predicament that they find themselves in is they know who is the rightful king. They know, they know David is the rightful king. Uh, they also know what he's done for them. He's, he's delivered them from their perennial enemies, the Philistines. They also know that it is, it is his throne to sit on, but yet nobody's willing to go and ask him to come back. Often, I think, because they've just opposed him. They supported his son, Absalom, in light, uh, in light of all of this. And so I ask myself why, as I read this, why would Israel anoint someone to lead over them who isn't God's anointed in their lives? And yet I'm, I'm quick to be reminded of, of how I do the exact same thing. God has anointed one in my life to be the king and ruler of my life. And yet oftentimes I, I turn to false kings. And I seek to be led and to be guided by false kings, knowing all along uh, that there is one true king. And as we'll see a little bit later, uh, that king is King Jesus. And so just interesting to note at the very beginning, we, we see Israel understands what they ought to do. But yet because of the disobedience and pursuing and following one who was not God's anointed... Um, They delay in bringing the king back. The text will go on in in verses 11 and 15, uh, 11 through 15, and and we'll see that uh, David gets word of all of this arguing. And so he sends word to the priest of Judah, and he says, hey, why are you guys not bringing me back as the king? And uh, he even goes a step further, and he says, Amasa, who was uh, one of the men of the tribe of Judah, He says, no longer would Joab be the commander of my army, but you will be. And this move is pretty significant in seeking to reconcile David with the tribe of Judah. And so uh, the Bible tells us that all of Judah, the tribe of Judah, all of their hearts turn as one man towards uh, their their allegiance, turns back towards David. And so it's interesting to note that in, in light of being rebelled against, in light of having these people follow one who is in opposition to David, David extends grace and pardon in seeking to be reconciled to his people. And so I think this is part of the bigger purpose of the passage. We do see that God is establishing David. He's bringing him back as the rightful king of his people. And in chapter 15, we do see David as he's leaving Jerusalem as a hunted fugitive. But yet in this chapter with the support of all of Israel, with the support of the tribe of Judah, we see him returning as the supported king. The story continues. Verse 16, it says, Shammai, son of Jerah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shammai, son of Jerah, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph 
to come down and meet my lord, the king. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Shouldn't Shammai be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. And David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am the king over Israel? So the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. And if you recall, chapter 16, as David is fleeing Jerusalem, there's this man, his, his name is Shammai, he comes out and he begins to, to curse God's anointed. He picks up rocks and he's hurling rocks and insults and, and dirt and whatever else he can pick up and he's throwing all of this at David. And if you also remember, Abishai is the man who was right there that said, David, shouldn't this dead dog be, cur- be killed for cursing God's anointed? And we see here that the posture of David's heart hasn't changed. Likewise, the the posture of Abishai's heart hasn't changed either. And uh, I believe in this encounter between Shammai and David, there are several things that ought to inform the way in which seekers of God ought to live their lives. We see that Shammai comes uh, in seeking forgiveness from David. He doesn't just send word. He doesn't just, he's not convicted about it and then just prays about it and leaves it at that. Uh, He His conviction leads him to action. And he goes to David to seek his forgiveness. And he he not only goes to David to seek his forgiveness, he falls prostrate before David. And not that, you know, you have to to do this in the office, you know, run up to someone you've wronged and fall down. Uh, It might be a little weird. You can do that. But I think what the text is after is just note the posture of his heart. This is a very prideful man who was at once hurling insults and stones at David, and now you see him recognizing his position before the king. And then you also see that he, he pleads for mercy. And mercy, I would define as uh, not getting what we deserve. And so you see Shammai here going before God and just, or going before David, and just, please do not give me what I deserve. I know I deserve to die. I know that I have sinned. He, he owns up to his sin. And so maybe some of, the, some of the way that Shammai responds to David ought to inform the way we seek forgiveness with other people. But I think even more beautiful than the way Shammai asked for forgiveness from David is the way David extends forgiveness to Shammai. You see, what's really humbling about this is in, what makes David's response so humbling is that in light of what has been done to him, he still extends mercy. And as seekers of God, we must do the same. You know, and I ask myself, why is it? Why would someone extend mercy to a man who curses you, who throws rocks at you? Why would you do that? It makes no sense at all. But yet, if you think back to chapter 12, uh, David sinned grievously against the Lord. Nathan confronts him. And Nathan tells him, God has extended you mercy. You know, and I think this, the message that's screaming out as people who are going to seek God wholeheartedly, in light of the mercy that's been given to us from Jesus Christ, how can we not extend that to other people? The story continues. We now have another encounter of David. Mephibosheth, who was Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes. 
from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride out on it, or will ride on it, so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from the lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, Why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. And if you'll recall, uh, when, when Jonathan had died, David made a covenant with Jonathan uh, right before his death. And the covenant that he made was that he would take care of the descendants of Saul and, or Jonathan. And so upon hearing about Jonathan's death, David sends word out, are there any descendants of Saul or Jonathan? And word comes back to him that there is this man Ziba who was Saul's servant. So David sends for Ziba. Ziba returns. David says, are there any descendants of Saul or Jonathan? And Ziba tells him, well, there is one. It's Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And he's, he's crippled. Um, and David sends for him. He comes back. And just in, in keeping his, his word, uh, David extends to Mephibosheth all of Saul's land. And so in light, of, in light of that background, in chapter 16, as David is fleeing Jerusalem, he runs into Ziba. And he asks Ziba, where is Mephibosheth? Why has he abandoned me? And Ziba goes on to tell David that uh, Mephibosheth is looking to gain in this war between David and his son Absalom. And he said, and so because of that, he has abandoned you and he is siding with Absalom. Well, if you're awake this morning, you realize that that's a different story than what Mephibosheth has just told David. Mephibosheth has just told David that Ziba betrayed him. And so you're thinking, okay, so David's going to, you know, the court is now in session. We're going to get at the bottom of this and see which one of these men are lying. But yet he doesn't do that. It, it seems he gives most, both men the benefit of the doubt and says, you know what? You guys divide the land. He still, he still gives them uh, what they do not deserve. And he says, you guys divide the land. And I thought about this, again, just asking, why, why would David uh, give land to both of these men, knowing that one, maybe if not both of them, are lying to him? And I'm just reminded again uh, that David made this covenant with Jonathan and this covenant with Jonathan wasn't contingent upon whether or not he was treated fairly. And it wasn't contingent upon whether or not uh, he wasn't lied to. Uh, David was, an in, uh, he was a man of integrity. He was intensely loyal to his word. And I think this ought to inform our lives. If we are going to be wholehearted seekers of God, we must be men and women of integrity. And I also think after David had committed uh, adultery and murder... Nathan confronts him, and, they, uh, and David had been deceiving others. He had put up all of these fronts to make sure that no one knew about the sin in his life, so he knew it was, what it was like to hide behind uh, a mask of deceit. And I think, again, just in light of the grace and the mercy that was extended to him, David had no other response but to extend that to others. And it's also interesting to note in this passage just the posture of Mephibosheth towards the king. 
You see, when David says, okay, the, the land is yours, just divide it however you want it. Mephibosheth, if you note his response, he says, let him take everything. Now that my Lord the King has arrived home safely. As I thought about this, one commentator noted it well. And he said, it is to be feared that too often we are more concerned about our rights than about the king. It is a great and glorious thing when our loyalty and love make us far more concerned about, about the victories of the Lord than about our own unquestioned rights. And then get, get this, this is how he, he concludes this. Yet this posture, this attitude of our heart should be the normal attitude of all who sit at the king's table. You see, sitting at the king's table, David reserved a spot for Mephibosheth, one of his so-called enemies. To sit at the king's table was equivalent to taking, one, uh, to taking one in as a son. And so we see here, David has taken his enemies in as his own son. The text continues, verses 31 through 39, we see David encounters another man, uh, Barzillai. Barzillai is an 80-year-old wealthy man. And uh, we find out just through his interaction with David that sometime in the past, Barzillai has helped out David. And David sees him again and says, Barzillai, we are crossing over the Jordan. And we're going back, and I'm going to establish my reign in Jerusalem as the king of Israel. I would love for for you to come with me. And Barzillai, uh, again, 80 years old, said, David, I do good uh, to hear anything right now. My taste buds are going I would be more of a burden than a blessing to travel with the king. He said, but if you would allow my servant, Chinnam, to come with you, uh, that, would, that would greatly honor me. Uh, David obliges, and we find out later in, in 1 Kings 2 that this Chinnam was, uh, was one of Barzillai's son. And so I just I summarize that encounter with you to note a couple of things. One is you see that, that David is a rewarder for those who have faithfully served the king. Uh, Barzillai did not serve the king because there was a reward that was coming. He served the king because that's the only response. That, that's, the only, that's the only adequate response to give a king is to serve him with all you have. And so maybe, maybe up to this point you're, you're thinking, wow, David has offered mercy to Shammai, something that he hasn't deserved. He's offered grace to Mephibosheth, he's given him a seat at his table, and he didn't deserve that. And now he's rewarding a faithful servant. And maybe you begin to see what the text is doing. The text, I believe, is pointing us to the greater David, to the one who will come and who will unite his people, who will extend grace to those who would war against him and even those who would crucify him, who would offer grace to those who curse him and hurl insults and stones at him, who would give those who were undeserving a seat at the banquet table, who would take those in who were naturally his enemies, and he would take them in as sons and daughters of the king, that he would show grace in giving those who were undeserving more than they could ever merit on their own, and that he will reward those who are faithful servants to the king. I believe what we see here is David alluding to Christ. And and the New Testament is full of examples. In Titus 3, it says, He saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood. Him would be Christ, Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this morning, I I, I just want to plead with you this morning that all of life comes down to this one issue. It's what you do with the king. Because you see, we were dead in in our sins and in our trespasses against God. But yet God didn't leave us that way. When we were unable to make a way and unable to get to God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly laid down his life to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have to understand that his place on the cross was was reserved for sinners, one of which he was not. He was our substitution. And three days later, he raised himself from death to show that death's power could not defeat him. And church, I just want to testify today that there is no mercy that is sweeter than the mercy that is found in Jesus Christ. And there is no grace that is greater than the grace found in Jesus Christ. And you will not find a love that is deeper than the love found in Jesus Christ. And so... Maybe you're here today and and that is foreign to you. You've never experienced that love of Christ. You don't know what it's like to be taken from being an enemy because of your sin to being a son because of his blood. At the end of the service, I'm going to invite you to come and just to talk to one of our leaders down front. Uh, There's no shame in walking in these doors um, without having a right relationship with Christ. But after hearing the good news and the truth of what he's done on our behalf, there's shame in going out that way. The story continues. Uh, Israel's sandals are not even dry from crossing the Jordan. And they begin to argue again. And so you see Judah, they're going, they're kind of taking the lead because it was Judah who took the lead in bringing David back. And so they're kind of orchestrating this whole progression to get David back to Jerusalem. And Israel begins to go, well, wait a minute. Why are you guys telling us what to do? And Judah says, the tribe of Judah responds, well, obviously David is from our tribe. We have a greater claim on David, the king. And Israel says, well, hold up. We represent 10 of the 12 tribes. Therefore, we have 10 times the claim on David than you do. And scripture doesn't tell us what was said next. But in verse 43 at the end, we do know that the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. And so you kind of you get a feeling that with all of this, this hostility, that it's just going to take one event that will just be a time bomb to everything going off. And that's sadly what happens. Chapter 20, we see, Now a troublemaker named Shabbat, son of Bikri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Shabbat, the son of Bakri. And so we see here, um, 
Israel is very quick to leave the king that they just defended. And we soon find out that, a lot of, that all that was was lip service. Uh, they said they had greater claim to the king. But yet, as soon as the troublemaker blows a horn and says, hey, we have no inheritance, they run. Uh, the text will tell us that, that Judah stays, if I finish reading. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. And so we see here um, something very similar to the revolt that Absalom started. And we will we'll be able to see a little bit later on in our text that David has learned uh, from not allowing this revolt to get, to get too, too big uh, and to not allow this following to, uh, to grow too much. And there's an interesting note here about David's interaction with these concubines. If you remember, when he left Jerusalem, chapter 16, as he was going away, he left ten concubines to care for his house. Absalom comes into Jerusalem, lies with the concubines, um, and then now David is returning. And, and based on the law, as prescribed in Deuteronomy 24, uh, we see here that, that David is seeking to honor the Lord uh, through holding to the law. But sadly, uh, this, the story of these concubines uh, is a vivid reminder that the effects of sin are far more widespread than we can imagine. You see, the sad fate of these ten concubines is an example of how our sin has, has horrible effects on other people. You see, these concubines suffered because of Absalom's sin. And Absalom suffered because of David's sin. And if we're just going to keep tracing. David suffered because of Adam's sin. And so I just echo, I ring that bell a little bit louder that Larry has been ringing for the past several weeks. Sin is far, far more devastating than we realize. And so I, I plead with you as well. Um, if there is sin that you are treasuring in your heart, do whatever you can to get that out. Um, the rest of the text, uh, because of time, we, we don't have time to cover it, but I'll just briefly summarize it. The rest of the text, uh, the king, knowing that Shabbat is out and he's kind of heading up this revolt, the king says, okay, Amasa, you are now the new commander of my army, you go out, gather up the men of Judah, and we're going to go out and find Shabbat. He gives him a timeline to do that, and Amasa takes a little bit longer than, than, than he should. And so David looks to Abishai and says, Abishai, gather my men, let's go out and find Shabbat. And so just to give you a little visual, he sends Amasa out to go out, gather men to go look for Shabbat. Takes him a little bit longer, so he sends Abishai out. And Abishai and all of his men go out and they're looking for Shabbat. Well, Amasa comes and he joins this search. I'm, all, of God's, or all of Israel is out searching, so I'll just join in with here. And uh, in doing so, we, there's, uh, the text will describe the, the tragic encounter of uh, Amasa's death. Joab, the former commander of David's army, uh, kills Amasa uh, through some deceit and... Uh, they throw his body to the side, cover him up, and they continue to go look for Shabbat. And Shabbat goes, and he, he is within this, this city, this fortified city called Abel Beth Makkah. 
And Abel Bethmaka has always stood as this, as this monument of the Lord's inheritance uh, within the city. And so Joab's men, they lay, they lay siege to the city. They, they encircle it. They're beginning to, to knock down the wall. And this wise woman comes and she sticks her head over the wall and says, Joab, Joab, what are you doing? And he says, we're looking for Shabbat. We're going to do whatever we can in order to get him for the king has sent us. And she says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you trying to destroy the Lord's inheritance? Why are you trying to destroy this monument that has been set up to commemorate what the Lord has done? And he says, well, I'm not. I'm just trying to, to look for this man. And she said, we'll have his head thrown over to you. It's in the text. And Joab says, well, okay, I'm not trying to destroy the city. So she goes and she talks to the wise men of the city, off with his head over to Joab. Joab blows the trumpet and all of Israel return. Um, and we see again that Israel is united under their anointed king, David. And just a couple of observations from that text. Again, I encourage you to go back and read it. But you'll notice what drives this wise woman is not this, the preservation of her life. But it's the preservation of the Lord's name and his renown and his fame to all the other nations. And it just begs the, the question of us, what is it that drives us? The woman could have definitely stuck her head over and said, Hey, what are you doing, dummy? I've got family in here. Hey, I'm not ready to go. But she looks over and she says, Why are you trying to destroy the Lord's inheritance? If we're going to be serious about seeking God wholeheartedly, we have to be more concerned about the name of, of, of Christ and the name of God than our own. And one commentator also noted this, this analogy. He said, Within every man's chest is a city enclosed, and every sin is a traitor that lurks within the walls of that city seeking to destroy. God calls for Shabbat's head. God calls for the head of that traitor. If we love the head of the traitor above the life of our soul, we will die in God's vengeance. And so, again, um, are we putting sin to death in our hearts? Are we allowing it to roam around? Because Scripture tells us that if we allow it to roam around, it's going to bring forth death. And so I think just as we look back and we see beginning in chapter the end of chapter 15, 16, David fleeing Jerusalem as, as a hunted fugitive. And we see here at the end of chapter 20 that he is restored again as the anointed king of Israel. And just throughout David's life, and we even see the effects of his sin now, let no one minimize the consequences of sin in David's life. Sin is never worth the price. And David's life illustrates this fact dramatically. And so as the, the music team comes to lead us in a response, I would just like to challenge us. How do you respond to the king? Scripture tells us that the anointed one who has come to rule our lives is Jesus Christ. And so how, how do you respond to the king? Are you like Shammai who comes and puts himself under? puts himself at the feet of the king? Are you like Shabbat? Are you like Absalom? People who rise up in revolt against the king. And earlier we talked about just 
the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that has been extended to us from Christ, if you've never, if you don't know anything about that, or maybe you've heard it your whole life, but you've never responded in repentance and faith, then I encourage you, uh, as, as they play, to come down and to speak to one of our elders, one of the leaders.